Welcome to the first episode of our third season for the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm Rebecca Morofsky, one of your hosts, and it's so nice to be back behind the mic. Before we get started, I wanted to make a special, very exciting announcement. We have a new co-host on the show, Ming, from our London office. She's an avid cat lover and K-pop aficionado, and she's officially making the show transatlantic and therefore very high-end. Ming, do you want to say a few words? Hello. Thanks for the intro. I'm Wei Ming Cam. Psyched to be here. I think the team's put together a very exciting season. Can't wait to get into it. So let's go. So today, to kick off the new season, we're talking to anthology editors Sarah Olson and Mario Tello about their book, Queer Euripides, Rereadings in Greek Tragedy. It's great to have you both on the show. I can say confidently that Ming and I are both delighted to immediately make the season queer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So just to kick it off, first and foremost, for our listeners who need a bit of context, who is Euripides and how much do we know about him? So maybe I can start. So thank you very much, Rebecca and Ming, for having us on the show. It's a great opportunity for Sarah and me to talk about this project that we are very proud of. And I also want to thank Bloomsbury for creating a space for this kind of experimental forward thinking work in classics and maybe we can talk later about the experimentalism that is behind the project itself. But yeah, just to talk about Euripides. So Euripides is one of the three major tragedians, the three major tragic playwrights of antiquity, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, right? And uh, the fact that he occupies the last place in the triad in the three names that I just mentioned is already an indication of how he was seen in antiquity and also in modern time, that is to say, a kind of end point of the genre of tragedy, but also a moment of decline, a moment of decadence, a moment at which tragedy reaches its completion, but it is a completion that is also, in a sense, a betrayal of uh, its origin or its quintessential orientation, what tragedy should do, ought to do. So we owe this vision of Euripides, that is the revolutionary, the decadent, the transgressive Euripides to Aristophanes, that is a comic playwright who in his play Frogs famously pits Aeschylus, the first tragedian, so the archaic, conservative tragedian against the innovator. So if you read Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, in The Birth of Tragedy, you really see kind of a version of the Aristophanic view of tragedy that is, according to Nietzsche, tragedy achieved its perfect form with Aeschylus. Aeschylus is the perfect embodiment of what for Nietzsche is the Dionysiac spirit incarnated by tragedy, while Euripides is the destroyer of the genre because he brought philosophy, he brought intellectualism into the genre, and in some sense, 
dismantled the kind of non-rational Dionysiac force of the genre. So if you like, we can talk about to what extent this picture of Euripides is borne out by the plays themselves. And I think that there is a kernel of truth in the sense that, yes, Euripides is the tragedian who shows us characters who are very skeptical of traditional Greek theology, who say the gods don't really care about us. Why are we so concerned about what we think? They are actually living in their own space without giving a damn about what we do. Euripides is also the tragedian who brought on stage a play called Hippolytus, where a stepson was propositioned by his stepmother. And that apparently caused so much scandal because, of course, having an older woman, you know, declaring her love to a young man was considered particularly transgressive to the point that apparently he had to do a second version of the play, which was viewed as less transgressive. Phaedra, the name of the stepmother, did not declare her love directly to her stepson. And then Euripides is the tragedian who brought on stage Medea, which was a huge flaw when it was put on stage the first time. Then it became one of the most popular tragedies already in antiquity and, of course, in modern times. But clearly, the idea that he had of bringing on stage a mother who kills her children did not fare well with the Athenian audience that at the time was dealing with the beginning of one of the greatest wars of all time, the Peloponnesian War. So I would say that the image of Euripides, the iconoclast, is difficult to abandon. And that's one of the reasons I would say that we are still interested in him. And that's also one of the reasons that we decided to use the concept of queerness to try to provide a new holistic way of looking at this tragedian. Great. I was going to ask, like, what about Euripides in particular makes his viewing his work through queer then so rich? But I think then we can sort of move on to like, well, can you tell us a bit about how this volume came about then? Because obviously we're going to look at the readings of Euripides through a queer lens. So how did putting this volume together happen? So it came about at the very beginning of the pandemic, during the very, very early lockdowns. I had been emailing with Mario about something else, asking him to read something for me. And we were speaking on Zoom and he proposed this idea. You know, we had both read Madhavi Menon's Shakespeare, which is a volume that has a similar structure, kind of takes the same approach to the works of Shakespeare, a chapter per play, wide range of theorists and scholars reading plays of Shakespeare in relation to queer theory, plays as well as the sonnets, in fact. So Mario says to me, why don't we do this for Euripides? And, you know, I thought it was a wonderful idea. And it was also, for me at least, and I think for Mario as well, it was a moment of deciding to carve out space for our intellectual interests and our curiosity and our desire for collaboration at a moment when that felt very challenging. 
when I say this as somebody with caregiving responsibilities and with, you know, circumstances in my own life that made it feel like I wasn't sure how I was going to carve out time for my scholarship at that moment. So this volume really represents that impulse. And so from that point, we began to reach out to people that we knew or people whose work we admired, people we knew were working on Euripides or on queer theory or queerness in classics, scholars both within classics, but also outside of classics. We have several people who contributed to Shakespeare as well as to this volume. And that was a kind of really exciting synergy. And we held a series after we had sort of been in touch with people and figured out who was going to do which chapter, which, as you can imagine, was a process. And, you know, right when you sort of have this set of plays that you want to cover and you want to sort of be in dialogue with people about what they want to work on. We then held a series of meetings on Zoom over the course of basically last academic year, mostly, I think, through the winter and spring, where we read work in queer theory, work by scholars like Lee Edelman and Marquis Bay, Amber Musser. We read a lot of, and we usually read several theorists per session together. And then we would get together on Zoom with all of the contributors, you know, whoever was available. And some people came to all of those sessions. Some people just came to one or two. Jack Halberstam joined us for one of them, which, you know, thanks again to Mario for arranging that. That was an amazing thing to be able to have him join us, read some of his work on wildness and queerness. And we just, we talked about that work, sometimes in relation to Euripides, sometimes just on its own terms as a kind of reading group and learning group together. So while we were holding those, people were working on their chapters. So for some people, those theorists we read together became important. For others, they weren't. But it was really generative to be doing that together. And I think it shows up across the volume in ways that are obvious and in some ways that are maybe less obvious. So it was a collaborative process. And I thought that was a really exciting feature of the volume as well. So maybe I can say something about the question that Ming sort of started to ask about why Euripides and why queerness, right? Because I think that that's a very important conceptual node of the project. So I said that people in modern criticism have come up with various labels to characterize the distinctive cipher, the distinctive shape of Euripidean tragedy. Actually, the very beginning of our introduction, we give a list of some of these characterizations, anarchical, clever, decadent, ironical, irreverent, pre-postmodern, revolutionary, transgressive. So we thought that queerness, which has been defined in multiple ways, could really be, you know, the right term to bring together all of these characterizations, because queerness is really about a broad sense of antinormativity. It's a contestation, of course, of what tends to be presented as the sexually legitimate, but it's broader than that. You know, as uh, Jose Esteban Munoz once put it, it's a way to think beyond the quagmire of the present. It's really about the possibility of uh, thinking how to reconfigure the social. So there is, I would say, in our volume, a programmatic push against a certain way of seeing sexualities in antiquity. And that push is really about, I would say, 
disidentification instead of identity. Well, of course, we do not exclude the importance of queerness as a mode of identification, but we also suggest that this mode of identification is predicated on the very possibility of making space for these identifications. So, for example, if one thinks of the treatment of ancient sexualities in the 90s, you know, you think of the treatment of pederastic relationships, that is, relationships between an adult male and, and a feeb, right? A male who just reached puberty. So these are relationships that we all know about from Plato and, of course, from Victorian appropriations of this model. But, in my opinion, there is nothing less queer than that, precisely because that's a very, not just because it's just about male relationships, which, of course, is a factor, but also because that kind of relationship is so ritualized. It's so codified. It's really about who has a certain role and who has the opposite role. So there is a kind of binarism, you know, that is built into that model. And since, you know, those relationships are historically presented, you know, they are historically certain, that is to say, there are traces, explicit traces of them in the evidence, in the textual and visual evidence that we have, you know, there is a tendency in the scholarship to focus on them. But that, of course, does not exhaust the range of possibilities of being and becoming, of sexually being and becoming that antiquity also must have offered. An example is Sappho. I think that Sappho is extraordinary in this respect, not just because of her female homoeroticism, but because we don't know anything about the context of these relations, right? Scholars have come up with all sorts of contextualizing models. Was she a schoolmistress? You know, so these were relationships between a teacher and the student. Some people even said, well, they are just platonic, like relationships between student and teachers. Or according to others, they were just friends. But of course, these are all attempts to desexualize these relations. But I would say that in the case of Sappho, the lack of a context, the fact that we don't really know in which context these bonds emerged, actually is an advantage. Is precisely, you know, what makes Sappho's attachments extremely queer, as opposed to the male-to-male relationships of uh, 5th century Athens. So, in a sense, the kind of queer anhistoricism that we embrace in our volume is a way to extend that Sappho model to the corpus of tragedy and to really see possibilities for being queer that are not calcified in a model that is historically attested. Because queerness also emerges 
from the engagements of readers of different times with a text, with the very broad possibilities of imagination that emerge through the affective, erotic even, catexis of a reader towards a text. That's fascinating. It's interesting how little I know about Sappho or how little any of us know about Sappho and how much of my own identity. She's just shaped like all of kind of queer femininity all the way to modernity. And so I agree. I think that you're unearthing this entire wealth of scholastic inquiry that I'm just kind of surprised hasn't been touched up until this point. I think it's just maybe because queerness as a term can be so slippery or can be so all-encompassing of all these temporalities that you're speaking to, it must have been really difficult to put together a collection. As series editors, I'm sure you had to deal with so many different contributors. And I imagine that it was really a challenge to think about what to ultimately include and what to leave out. Even just the conversations between the two of you, there seemed to be such a like cross-fertilization of ideas. Could you speak a little bit to how you went about soliciting contributions from people? This isn't directly to that question, actually, but I, Rebecca, but I did just to jump, you know, in on the kind of question of the contributions. I wanted to plug one of our chapters. I could plug all of them. I'm so excited about all of them. We could talk about them. But Ella Hasselworth's chapter, which is on Iphigenia at Aulis, is, I think, a wonderful example of what Mario was just saying about the kind of poetics of Sappho and the poetics of reading Sappho, which is something that Ella Hasselworth, who wrote that chapter, has written about elsewhere beautifully. I just think she brings that approach to that play and, you know, in this sense, unearths a resonance in that play that really notoriously difficult and fragmentary, not unlike Sappho play, right, where some of the text that we possess of that play is fraught and includes these kind of additions from later periods or later interpolators. And philologists have been very interested in trying to fix that play and figure out what its original form was. And so the ways that Ella plays with that play and rereads it and draws out the hints of female homoeroticism, female intimacy, possibilities of female pathways of female desire in that play. Again, I can plug all of them, but it's one of the things I love about that contribution. I think it's such a good example of what Mario was just saying. But it's another thing too, sort of to your question. I love that as much as Mario and I have our own perspectives as editors and bring those through, the pieces are all different. And there's not one definition of queerness, I think, that emerges from those different contributions. We intentionally invited authors to define that term for themselves, to pick up on different strands within queer theory, different theorists, and to stake out their own place. I really appreciate that about the volume. And it's something that makes it very different from, you know, a monograph or even a co-authored book. I definitely want to read that chapter on Sappho. I keep on thinking about... Anne Carson's Eros, the Bittersweet, her whole thesis. And so, yeah, I very much have Sappho on the mind. I, I'm really excited to read more into queer female intimacy. Thank you for the plug. Did you come across any really tough decisions of whether a particular piece ended up fitting? And because as you just said, I think there's so many different definitions of queerness and some of them are contested. Some of them are kind of antithetical to one another. Were there any kinds of tensions that you came across when you were 
trying to create an overarching collection? Yes, I think we can actually <laughs> talk about it. I think that I can think of two in particular. And I will start by saying that the title of the book is Queer Euripides, but I think, I wish we had called it Queer Trans Euripides, because of course that's a perspective that is included. I mean, the trans perspective is included in the volume, and that is something that we really wanted to do because perhaps this is something delicate but worth mentioning. There are unfortunately some, I would say, heated conflicts between queer theorists and trans theorists. There are even some trans theorists who have suggested that queer theory has some elements of, let's say, transphobia. So this is a very delicate subject, as you can imagine. So in a sense, the title may give the impression that we privilege the queer perspective, but actually not. We tend to see the two together and you know, we don't want the term queer to be seen as cannibalizing trans. I guess in the color of the cover, which Bloomsbury beautifully did for us, there is pink, but there is also the lavender. And the cue of queer is in lavender. So this is really a deliberate attempt on our part to create the possibility of a space of thinking together. And in our volume, we actually have contributions, you know, that look at transness from really different point of views, point of views that are seen also incompatible by some people. So on the one hand, some people who see transness as trans realness, that is to say, as a journey toward an identity that has an end point. And on the other hand, there are people who see transness as a kind of rejection of the end point, right? As a kind of ongoing destabilization of the very idea of a gender stability, of a gender normativity as such. And for example, the first group of trans theorists have accused the latter of denying the very realness of transness in the sense that if you establish that there is no end point, where there is no moment in which that transition can be completed, in a sense, you are suggesting that the transition in itself is impossible. So realness can never be achieved. So we did not want to take sides and we actually tried to create once again the space for a dialogue. But it was challenging. First of all, we had to look for people, not just in trans theory, but also in classics, who would be willing to write on Euripides, who would represent these different positions. So that was a challenge. And I then would say another challenge 
was perhaps to find a compromise between the pessimists and the optimists, right? So even this is a simplification of much more complex debates, but we mentioned Lee Edelman before, so who is the author of a famous book called No Future, Queer Theory and the Dev Drive, which is a very Lacanian take on the queer, the queer as the space of the real within the symbolic. And of course, there is this term, the dev drive, that is used constantly, which scares off a lot of people and has generated the idea that for Edelman, queer people should just commit themselves to death, which is not really what the book is about. The book is more about how the future and how the idea of reproduction has been used to marginalize queer people and how reproduction can really be used against queers and against women. But there is still a group of people who think that Lee Edelman is too negative and prefer a much more optimistic idea of the queer future. So that was also another sort of conflict that we had to negotiate in some form. And I hope that people with different orientations will be able to find both of these views equally represented in the volume. I think another thing that you is sort of probably inevitable in any edited volume, but as editors, we're probably acutely aware of everything that could have been. We originally were thinking about the chapters. We at one point had floated the idea of having a chapter on fragments, on tragic fragments, Euripidean fragments. It probably would have been excellent, right? It could have been a great contribution. You know, we have a chapter on Aristophanes, Lumnesmophoria, because it's a play that is so deeply engaged with European aesthetics and some of these questions that Mario flagged before about European style and how, you know, again, it's kind of an origin point in antiquity for some of these stories we tell about Euripides and who he was and what his style is. So to us, it made a lot of sense to have that chapter and to have that reflection. But again, Aristophanes' frogs could have been another point for that reflection. So, you know, at least in my mind, there are all of these kind of ghosts of chapters that might have been, but of course, a volume can't be infinitely long. The publishers don't like that. Also, you know, a lot of people said, why did you decide to assign play to each contributor as opposed to asking them to write a chapter on a team that could branch out in different directions with different plays? Because we really wanted to give a sense of a reinvention of a whole corpus, right? Sort of, we wanted to recreate the Euripidean archive, to turn it into a queer archive. And the way you do it is by assigning short chapters that provide possibilities, sketches for queer readings that we hope will be picked up on by other scholars later. So I'm actually quite attached to the idea of a volume where each person has a play. Also because some plays otherwise would have been neglected. In fact, 
I, for example, took a play when nobody else wanted. So Euripides wrote a play called Suppliant Women. Actually, there is another play by Ischylos that has the same title. So the idea of supplication in relation to the feminine is a theme that clearly was considered very tragic in antiquity. But this is a play that is considered among the minor plays of Euripides. It's not usually staged. So I did it. And I had a great time. And I'm still writing about it precisely because this play is about women who are asking to get, who are asking Athens to get back the bodies of their children who died in war. And this has a lot of resonance with what happened during the pandemic, where, as you know, a lot of people could not attend the funerals of their loved ones. Or I'm Italian originally, so I know that in Italy, some people who died during the pandemic didn't really have a proper funeral. Of course, this is a very important theme that we associate with Sophocles' Antigone, but it's also central to a play like The Suppliant Women. So sometimes there are some interesting combination between a play that is traditionally being unappreciated and configurations of the time in which a play is read or reread that can create unpredictable openings of interpretive possibilities. And that's what happened to me with Suppliant Women. So at the end, I'm glad that nobody else chose it so that I, I could do it. We're so excited for you to read the books from all our amazing authors that we've talked to this season. Add Queer Euripides to your cart on our website and enter code POD35 followed by the country codes UK, US, AU or CA depending on where you're located.